Hey everybody, today I'm going to interview Dr. Matt Shea and we're going to talk about bioethics, well-being, and philosophy. Super excited for this interview. Uh, all right, Matt, why don't you introduce yourself? All right. Well, it's good to be with you, Jason. Thank you for having me on the show today. Um, I am Matt Shea. I'm a professor of philosophy at Franciscan University in Steubenville, Ohio. My main areas of focus are moral philosophy, kind of questions in traditional moral theory, and also bioethics. Wonderful. And uh, for those of you who don't know, uh, both Matt and I have clinical experience. We're one of the very few philosophers who's, who've actually worked in hospitals, and hopefully we'll get to that topic. Um, so we're going to discuss, I guess, a standard model of bioethics. And I, I was hoping that you could give a brief explanation of what that is. Sure. So our starting point will be um, the framework known as principalism or the four principles approach. So this approach has been around for a long time. Um, it was you know, developed and is defended. The two most prominent defenders are um, Tom Beecham and James Childress. And principalism just celebrated its 40th anniversary a few years back. So this approach has been around for a while. In a way, it's uh, overlapping with the very birth of bioethics as, a, as the field that we know today, um, which didn't exist forever in philosophy or in medicine. So in large part, the field of bioethics kind of goes hand in hand with the development of principalism. It's a theory that's very much organic and growing over the years. So it's very, it looks very different now than it did in the very first edition when they started it. Uh, but it's come to be the dominant approach in bioethics. And I, I think it's fair to say both in the academic setting and especially in the clinical setting. Um, almost everybody knows and references and sometimes uses the four principles that are at the heart of principalism. So this is an approach that's well worth engaging with because of its prominence and and dominance in the field for a long time. So, Great. so you why know, don't you, uh, yeah, can, can you give a brief explanation of the four different principles? Sure, sure. So principalism is more than the principles, um, and it's grown with different components. So it's it's not a static theory. It's changed over the years. It looks very different if you compare the first edition with which with the most recent one, I think the eighth edition that came out a few years back. But the four principles are at the core of it. So uh, what it's supposed to be is not kind of a general high or full-blown moral theory the way you'd find in moral philosophy. So it's not supposed to be doing the same thing that the traditional theories of utilitarianism and deontology and natural law theory, virtue ethics, and the rest are doing a complete account of morality in every dimension. It's supposed to be uh, less high grade than that complete. So it's a mid-level theory, which is supposed to operate at this kind of middle level between particular judgments about, say, what's right and wrong in a specific case, and then these grand general uh, theories that are at a very high level of distraction and cover things that are at a very general level, kind of a theory of everything in morality. So it centers on the four principles. Um, a moral principle is just a principle of obligation. So it's a normative action guiding uh, norm that tells us how we ought to act. And it's a general one. So it's more specific than a rule like um, it's wrong to poison your patients, right? a very specific rule. The four principles are respect for autonomy, beneficence, non-maleficence, and justice. So I'll explain each one a little bit. Respect for autonomy is basically respecting the autonomous choices of other people. Uh, there are a few interesting things here about how they understand the nature of autonomy and the object of respect, but we can get into that stuff later if you want. Um, so here the idea is that if you're dealing with somebody who is autonomous and they're making kind of an informed, free, voluntary decision, 
that gives you an obligation to respect that decision in both a non-interference sense, don't interfere with the autonomous choices of others, but also in a positive sense of helping to promote autonomous decision-making in, say, your patients. The next two are connected. So these are benefit and harm principles. Beneficence is the obligation to benefit others or to help them. Uh, Non-maleficence uh, is the obligation not to cause harm. So that's a negative principle. And the last one, justice, is also interesting, and people have said a lot about this one. They understand it in a pretty narrow way. So justice for Beecham and Childress is really what's traditionally called distributive justice. So this is kind of the fair distribution of goods and bads or benefits and burdens or risks and costs. So it's how these, usually in the medical setting, how medical resources are distributed among people. So one thing about the principles is that as I mentioned, they're not supposed to be rooted in some more uh, fundamental general moral theory. So they're not supposed to be explained in terms of a utilitarian framework, for example, or a Kantian framework. They're supposed to be free of these deeper groundings in a general theory of morality. And they're also supposed to be equally basic. They have the same kind of status. So there's not any kind of hierarchy or priority among them. Uh, they're equal in terms of their authority or their moral weight. One important feature is that none of them is an absolute principle. So if you thought that, say, the principle of non-maleficence, right? Some people read you know, traditional medical ethics like this, first do no harm, right? That would be a way of making the non-maleficence, the do no harm principle, kind of in first place or first priority. So you might say it's always wrong, right? It's always wrong in every set of circumstances with no exceptions to cause harm to your patients, right? That would be making non-maleficence an absolute principle or you could do it with another principle. Beecham and Childress reject that approach. So all of these principles, all four, are prima facie principles or defeasible principles. So they don't have absolute weight. They can be overridden or outweighed or trumped by some conflicting principle, depending on the circumstances, depending on the case. So they're all at the same level of priority or weight or importance. There's no hierarchy among them. Well, that's a good explanation. Thank you for that. So I was... I was wondering about whether or not there was a, some sort of hierarchy between these principles, you know? So sometimes it seems that respect for autonomy will trump beneficence, right? Like in the case of a Jehovah's Witness refusing a blood product, mm -hmm. right? And it's like, well, from we believe that this person dying is going to be bad for them, right? But we have to respect their choices, uh, given that they have decision-making capacity. And so in this case, respect for autonomy wins. Mm -hmm. What would you say? What would I say or what would the principalists say? Well, what would principalists say? Like, how can they be equal if one can trump the other like that? Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. So this gets into something we were going to talk about later, which is kind of my criticisms of the approach. You're, I think the case you gave gets at the heart of what I find to be one of the biggest uh, weaknesses of the principalist approach. But so really here they're following, uh, which is a pretty popular trend among moral philosophers now, but uh, one of the most famous and influential people who did this was W.D. Ross, right? So traditionally in moral philosophy, most of the theories, right, whether it's kind of Aristotelian virtue ethics or Kantian deontology or natural law theory, they affirmed absolutism. So they thought there were some absolute principles that it's always wrong to violate, right? Um, W.D. Ross very famously rejects that, rejects moral absolutism, and thinks that every moral principle, every moral reason is defeasible or prima facie. This is his famous doctrine of prima facie duties. And Beecham and Childress are, in this way, heavily influenced by Ross, um, and they explicitly kind of appeal to Ross's framework here. So the idea is that there can be certain moral reasons or obligations 
that might be relevant in a situation. So take the four principles, right? The non-absolutist is going to say that these principles always have moral significance or moral valence. So the fact that something's going to harm a patient is always going to be a wrong-making feature of the action, right? The fact that it's going to respect autonomy is going to be a right-making feature of the action. So they're always relevant when they apply in a circumstance, but they have no kind of initial priority relations among them, right? They, you can't, before you get to the specific case, you can't say that in general, right, or other things being equal, respect for autonomy has greater weight than beneficence, like you said. They're all equal, right? They're, and it really is just all dependent on the particular circumstances in terms of which one is going to take priority and be the actual obligation or the all things considered duty that you should follow, right? Which principle you should go with that's the real determining factor in the situation. And, there, and it can go different ways, right? So sometimes autonomy might trump beneficence and other times it might go the other way, right? So take your case. The Jehovah's Witness case is one where the consensus view now is that respect for autonomy is the overriding principle and that you should respect the refusal even if it's going to cost the patient is it her life, right? But then we have other cases where kind of hard paternalism does seem justified, right? So you've got a case where somebody has a really deadly, highly contagious disease, right? Like Ebola or something and they need to be confined in the hospital for the sake of protecting other people, there you have a conflict of duties, right? There you have beneficence and respect for autonomy. So the person is autonomous. They want to leave, return to their life, right? Leave the hospital, leave quarantine. But this is going to pose a really serious high risk to other people. So you've got beneficence toward other people who might be infected and threatened by the choice to leave, respecting the patient's autonomy. The consensus there is that it's usually the right thing to do is to keep the patient, right? To not let them leave. So there you have beneficence overriding respect for autonomy. So according to Beecham and Childress, right? And others who take this approach, this non-absolutist approach, that all every principle can go either way depending on the circumstances. So it's not the case that one principle always trumps the other one. It can change depending on the circumstances. That's interesting. I, I think let, let's talk about that case some more. So I thought that it was interesting that you said that that would, that would be illustrative of beneficence trumping respect for autonomy because it's beneficence toward other people. Whereas for something like that, I would almost want to classify it as under justice mm -hmm. in a sense because I usually see justice as dealing with like population-wide level issues, right? Mm -hmm. And if, you know, kind of like if you doing what you want actually harms other people, then it becomes more of like a population-wide problem. So is there a case where beneficence for the patient, like directed toward the patient, trumps the patient's respect for autonomy, mm -hmm. right? And I, I don't know of one. Right, right. Yeah, that's a really controversial one. So I think the, again, the consensus view in medical ethics now is usually no, right? Because the standard view is that there's an absolute right of autonomous patients to refuse any and all medical interventions, including life-sustaining ones, right? And that you and the paternalistic kind of treatment, treating the patient against their autonomous will, against their refusal, can never be justified for the sake of the patient, right? Beneficence toward the patient. Um, that's the dominant view now. I think bioethics and, and certainly in kind of clinical medicine and the law, but I don't think it's beyond dispute, right? So this is kind of getting at the my deeper worry, right? Is that a lot of these cases depend on more basic assumptions that are often operating in the background about the relative importance of the morally relevant factors at stake here. Yeah. And I don't think there's anything like a universal consensus on on those deeper issues. So going back to the Jehovah's Witness refusing blood products case, 
How does that relate to your criticism and concerns with principalism? Yeah, yeah. So I have two um, major concerns. I have, you know, a handful of different concerns. The two biggest ones, though, and the ones that are relevant to our kind of shared interest, Jason, in the philosophy of well-being, is that one of the things, one of the most important features, I think, of the whole principalist approach is that, on the one hand, one strength of it is that it's supposed to be very inclusive, very ecumenical. And in a way, it's trying to incorporate all of the key concepts and insights and strengths of all these different moral theories and traditions, right? Borrowing stuff uh, from all these different moral traditions and trying to accommodate those into its principles framework. So I think um, one critic has uh, has accused principalism. I don't know if this was a friendly criticism or a joking one of being like the Borg in Star Trek. Now I'm probably going to get this wrong because I'm a Star Wars fan, as you know. I'm not Star Trek is not in my wheelhouse. But I, <laughs> I love the Borg, by the way. Yeah. They're like the best bad guy in Star Trek. Do they? They just absorb everything. Basically. Yeah, they assimilate. Yeah. The word is assimilate. Yeah, yeah. So that's what it is, right? So I think it was John Aris who said uh, principalists are like the Borg. They just whenever they're faced with something that seems to be outside the principalist tent, they just assimilate it and try and find some way to work it in the theory. So they're very skilled at that, you know, and there's something to be said for that. If you can capture like the intuitive aspects of different moral approaches, right, and bring them in. So what you find over the years is that it's it extends much beyond the principles. So they have brought in different components. One of the big criticisms was that it was missing anything about virtue. So now if you look at the recent edition, there's a whole chapter on virtue and moral character. So they've tried to build that into the theory. Um, same goes for moral status, right? What makes someone morally considerable or the subject of moral rights, uh, who falls under and kind of in the moral community, they have a whole chapter on that. So they've tried to include these things, um, in their chapter on justice, they run down kind of a lot of the leading theories of justice and try to find a way to capture all of these things, um, in their principle of justice. One thing they don't do, though, and I think this is a really important omission, is that nowhere in the principles framework, at least the way Beechman Childress have formulated it, kind of in its standard version, there's no axiology. There's no account of what's good and bad. Um, there's no theory of goodness there. There is goodness and badness talk and judgments being made all throughout the book because you can't escape them in ethics, right? There's no way to talk about ethics without talking about goodness and badness. But it's not part of the theory. So there's no account. Um, there's no clear conception of what things are good and bad, and especially of why, right? About the nature of goodness itself, what makes all good things good and all bad things bad. And this is kind of, I think, the root of my, this is this is the, uh, the fatal flaw in my view of the approach, is that I don't think there's any way to actually pull it off and to have an adequate theory, both in the sense of giving kind of a theoretical account of, of the nature of morality, but also in the practical sense of having a framework that's going to be sufficiently action guiding, right? To guide judgment and help you make decisions in the real world, which is what they want. They want it to do, right? It has to be a practically usable approach. So the way that I bring this out is by looking at kind of two key processes. I think this is where you can see the real problem with not having some account of the good. They recognize that these principles, the way that we've been talking about them, are very general. They're very abstract. They're very indeterminate, right? So they don't have much content. It doesn't really tell you much. Um, so for example, respect for autonomy, right? To really um, have a full-blown principle that's going to be useful for understanding what it is and also for using it, you have to have some account of what autonomy is, right? Or justice, right? The nature of justice or uh, one that's of special relevance to us, 
the two principles that deal with benefits and harms, right? Beneficence and non-maleficence. You can't really talk about benefiting people and not harming them unless you have some account of what actually is beneficial and harmful or, you know, the way philosophers put it, some theory of well-being, right? What constitutes a benefit and a harm, the nature of what's good and bad for individuals. So they don't have that. Um, and what you find is that when they try to put some meat on the bones of this very, very general abstract framework of the four principles, kind of in the way that we've articulated them, they realize that you have to do two different things with them. You have to, what they call specification, you have to add content to them. You have to flesh out what they mean. So what is autonomy? What does respect mean? Um, what is justice? Uh, what is benefit? What is harm? You have to put some meat on the bones of these highly abstract uh, principles. And to do that, I think there's no way to do that um, in a satisfactory way without bringing in some account of goodness and badness. So beneficence is an easy one to see, right? If the obligation is supposed to be to benefit patients, then you have to know what's actually good and bad for people. And as we know, that's not something everyone agrees on, right? There's, there has been, and there still are lots of different competing views about the nature of what's good for people. So if you're a hedonist, you think it's ultimately pleasure, right? Pleasant experiences. If you're some kind of desire satisfaction theorist, you think it's getting what you want, right? And there's different variants of all these. Um, if you're an objective list theorist, like you are Jason, right? You think there are certain items that are objectively good for you, right? Independently of your beliefs or desires or whether you enjoy them or not, right? Things like friendship and knowledge and health, maybe. Uh, if you're a perfectionist like me, you think that what's objectively good for us is fulfilling our human nature, right? Developing and exercising our capacities and fulfilling these goods that our nature directs us to. And there's a bunch of others, right? So one problem I think is that without getting into the weeds of these underlying questions and debates and deeper, more fundamental questions about the nature of well-being, you can't specify a principle like beneficence um, at all. You can't give it any kind of content. If you don't have any content, it's not going to be useful for the purpose of understanding or for practical decision-making, I think. Yeah, I know. Thank you for that. I think that was a good explanation of what your concern is with principalism. I almost feel like it's an inevitable problem with mid-level theories, right? If the goal from the outset is to give a theory that isn't based in any fundamental theory of morality or well-being, then it's going to come up with these problems, right? Like it's it, the fact that it's not based on a particular theory of well-being means that it's not going to give you a specific definition of what benefits a patient, right? It, it literally cannot do that. Because it's it's trying it's almost trying not to right, and I I suspect the goal of coming up with some mid level theory is that it's supposed to be very accommodating, but to do that it has to be very vague. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right. Um, and I think you know the problem is even worse when we get to something that we you brought up before with the Jehovah's Witness case. Specifying is one thing, but suppose that you know you could flesh these out without having to get into these deeper questions about what's good and bad for people. There's another problem that I think is even worse for the principalist approach, and that's, they call it balancing, right? Balancing principles. That's just the idea of conflicting principles that we've talked about before. So I think it's just ubiquitous in the moral life that different moral reasons or principles or obligations come into conflict, right? And that goes for not just principles, but it goes for moral rights, for moral virtues, for a whole bunch of things that more than one is relevant and they're in tension with each other. So they collide, right? They're at least in apparent conflict. So these are kind of moral dilemmas in a loose sense where we're at least faced with this decision of, 
we seem to have moral reasons and obligations that favor two incompatible courses of action, right? To do two things and you can't do them both. Um, so we have to decide in these conflict cases, what should we do? What's the right thing to do, all things considered, right? What's our actual obligation? And so they call this the balancing problem. And they spend a lot of time talking about it because they realize that it's unavoidable, especially in medicine. This accounts for a lot of the moral problems that we encounter, right? In the moral life, but especially in medical ethics. And I think their solution to it, um, they have different parts of it, but the, you know, they want to, again, they can't appeal to these deeper theories of goodness, these deeper accounts of well-being. Uh, and this, I think, is the is kind of the fatal drawback here, um, because what I want to say is that part, not not the whole thing, but part of what we're doing in terms of how we explain and justify these judgments about which principle is the overriding one, right, and determine what to do, is that we look to the goods and evils involved, right? We look to the benefits and harms, and we compare them with each other, right? And we determine which one on balance is the more important good, right, the more valuable good. I think there's more that goes into it. That's just one thing. But I do think that's an essential part of how we make these kinds of balancing judgments. And the really interesting thing is that when you look at when Beecham, so when they give their account of how you solve this balancing problem, that's not part of it, right? They they don't appeal to goods and bads, right? That's not part of their account. They don't want to get in the weeds of well-being. But then when they actually deal with specific moral issues, that's what they do every single time almost when they, especially for the really controversial ones. So it's the fascinating thing is that they actually do the exact thing that I said we have to do, right? Appealing to well-being judgments about good and evil, but those aren't part of their account. So they just kind of insert them in there, right? They're assumed, but they're playing a key role in the argument. So um, I think this is the clearest place to me where you see this come out is uh, where they defend um, physician-assisted suicide. And I think also voluntary euthanasia, although I'm not quite sure about that, uh, which is a change in their view. And when they first started, you know, developing this, they didn't take that position. So their position has changed. When you look at their argument for why they think that um, assisted suicide and probably euthanasia can be morally justified in some cases, it all boils down to well-being judgments about whether life. So it's really about whether death is a benefit or a harm. Right. Uh, and what you find, I think, is very clear. They resort to a subjective account of well-being. So it's something like if a person uh, makes an autonomous judgment that death is in their best interest, then death counts as a benefit rather than a harm. But of course, that assumes that goodness depends on the autonomous judgment of the patient. If you're an objectivist about well-being, you think people can be mistaken, even in their, in their autonomous judgments about what's really good and bad for them. So that kind of subjective uh, position could be correct, but it needs to be defended, right? It's super controversial. It can't just be assumed. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Bending such a, a disputed conclusion, right, about something like that. Yeah. Uh, do you think that this is just the problem with mid-level theories? Like, do you think they're just doomed to fail because <laughs> they don't want to adopt any comprehensive theory? Yeah, yeah. If I put my cards on the table, yes, I think they're doomed to fail. I don't think they're. I don't think they're going to be successful in either of the kind of things we want from an account of ethics, whether it's the more theoretical project of really understanding the nature of morality, right? Um, or the practical goal of providing like adequate action guidance, right? And helping us make moral decisions. I think mid-level principles are going to be unsustainable. So, um, and when you, when you kind of recognize the problems and you work them out, I think that there's kind of two ways you can go after that, right? You could just 
abandon the project of moral theory traditionally understood and just resort to kind of a pure particularist view. The way I want to go is the other one is that we're going to fall back on these more general kind of traditional complete moral theories, which is exactly what they're trying to avoid, right? The whole point of having a mid-level theory is that you don't have to rely on one of these more fundamental theories because as they recognize, there is uh, intractable and endless debate among philosophers and other people about which theory of morality is correct. Um, so yeah, that makes sense. I think the desire for consensus for a system that we can use in the real world that can bypass a lot of these deep moral disagreements that we find is a big driving factor behind principalism. But I don't think at the end of the day, they're going to be able to avoid, you know, assuming or explicitly bringing in partisan uh, moral views. So I don't think it's it's going to be able to maintain its neutrality. Yeah. I mean, if you have a mid-level theory that doesn't adopt any comprehensive theory, I think one of the troubles is that different people can arrive at different conclusions, right? Because the terms are not defined. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, and that happens all the time. I mean, it happens, especially I think in really hard cases or controversial things at the beginning and end of life. There are specific, you know, so we've been talking at a general level, right? Uh, there are specific goods and evils or specific things, you know, whose value is, is highly disputed, right? And, and there's some really hard questions here. Right, that people have spent a long time thinking carefully about. So autonomy is a big one, right? Not everyone has the same understanding of what autonomy is or what makes it valuable or when it's valuable. For example, right, does the obligation to respect autonomy apply to someone who's autonomously making a choice that you think is really immoral or really kind of harming to them, right? Like a self-harming choice, uh, or does it have to be something that's good, right? Either like in their own interest, objectively speaking, or morally permissible or something. There's a lot of disagreement about that. Specific things like disability, right? Which which I've thought a bit about is extremely controversial. I think that's those are highly problematic. Those come up in a lot of beginning and end of life cases. Um, and that's where you see a lot of the well-being judgments just uh, usually they're they're not consciously held right they're just kind of a lot of them are just assumptions that people get from the culture right or from the from the medical culture around them um absolutely so those are some places where i think there's just no way if we're going to do do the ethics well where we can avoid just facing the hard questions about the value of autonomy or disability and all host of other things yeah yeah hi i'm wondering like a I can understand the theoretical problem with it that can sometimes lead to practical issues and disagreements, but I'm wondering if that's the best that we can do, you know, because we're not going to get philosophers to agree on what the Craig rule theory is. So perhaps the best that we can do is some mid-level theory, and perhaps it's just unavoidable that we're going to deal with the uh, the issues that come with that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I'm sympathetic to that, Jason. Because I think you're right. There's no way, at least through philosophy or through rational argument, that all, all reasonable people of goodwill are going to end up on the same page in terms of these kind of fundamental questions of ethics. So I agree with you about that. One of the worries that I have, so this gets into a broader worry about exactly what's going on in medical ethics, right? And, uh, and what we mean when we talk about ethics in the setting of like mainstream secular clinical medicine, right? The kind of context that you and I have some experience working in. Because what you find is that there's there's an awareness and, an, and a commitment to doing ethics in a certain way, right? And the major, the most popular way is in a principalist way. Okay, so people will talk about moral concepts. It's not that most clinicians and patients and families are uninterested in the moral dimension of these decisions. They're really interested. And a lot of them care about doing the right thing. 
And so what often happens, at least in my experience, is that people will use certain moral frameworks, principalism being a major one. And they'll talk about things like autonomy and justice and beneficence with the idea that this is going to help them arrive at the morally correct verdict, right? To make the right decision. But my worry is that this is all kind of surface level, right? It's operating at a level where it's really vague. It's really general. Uh, it's not specific enough. And inevitably when the rubber meets the road, these concepts are just too thin. They're too light. Uh, to actually determine what should be done or resolve, especially these hard cases, right? And so what's going to happen there if there's no, if it's not built into the kind of ethics culture of whatever we're talking about, that you actually address these fundamental questions, then I think what's going to happen is the decisions are going to get made because they have to get made one way or another. But it's really going to be based uh, less on something like careful, critical, moral reflection that addresses these questions you know, and tries to act in accordance with what they think the right answer is, right? The right thing to do. And it's going to be more based on stuff like um, the conventions of the practice, right? The professional codes of ethics and what's legal and what's considered like public consensus, right? Or whatever, whatever is in the air, right? Uh, um, whatever everyone else thinks, <laughs> right? The majority view of whoever the, the right people are. And that's not a way to do ethics well, right? It's not a way to do Yeah, no. And this might be a good segue to, I guess, our personal reflections on doing ethics at the, in a hospital setting. Like, I don't know if this is true for you, but it, it, on one level, it was quite frustrating because there was very little philosophical discussion involved. These terms were vague. Um, sometimes I would be, I would be questioning why this particular action was the recommended one, right? And that it would it, it, it would just be hard to make specific recommendations without first having an understanding of what these terms mean. Yeah. No, I, my experience um, resonates with yours, Jason. Yeah. The world of um, clinical healthcare ethics is a strange world, I think, for a philosopher like you or me to enter into. It's a wonderful world. Um, and I'm really grateful I got to live in that world for a bit. Um, and I think that there's a lot, it's important to have it. There's a lot of good that can be done, right? I know a lot of people. Uh, friends who are doing a lot of good in that domain. Um, so it's nothing against the kind of having a professional ethicist or anything. But if you're thinking about it kind of philosophically, uh, it's a strange it's a strange thing that's going on, right, in the world of clinical ethics, because unlike in moral philosophy, where everybody's trying to get at the right answer about morality, right, you're talking about morality in kind of the the capital M sense, right, about the truth about morality. So this is what's ultimately what's really right and wrong, good and evil, virtuous and vicious, et cetera. Um, and that's how philosophers operate. I think that's a natural way to think about it. And there, morality is going to be something that's independent, at least on a realist view, right? Uh, if you're a cultural relativist, this doesn't apply, obviously. But if you're a realist who thinks there are objective truths uh, in ethics, then you're going to say that morality is independent of the law and um social consensus and professional codes of ethics uh, and all those things, right? Hospital policies, all that stuff. Uh, the opinion of the community of professional ethicists, right? The dominant views in the bioethics journals, all of those things are not identical with the standard of morality itself. So if that's your view that you're coming at it with, then it can be strange to be a clinical ethicist because you use the same language. Like you said, you talk about ethics, you talk about things like permissible, obligatory, rights, um, 
ethically appropriate, right? You make recommendations about what ought to be done. So it's, it's normative. It seems to be ethically normative, but it's clearly not doing the same thing that philosophers are doing when they'll say that such and such is ethically permissible because the standard is different. I think, um, this is something I puzzled over and, uh, and thought about a lot in my experience in the hospital. But the way I see it, and I could be wrong about this, but it seems to me that the standard of normativity that's used when people talk about something being ethical or moral in the clinical setting is not kind of morality itself. It's some amalgamation of uh, social consensus and the current law and the you know professional codes of ethics, like the AMA code or the ANA code, um, and then the consensus of the kind of bioethics community, right? Whatever that is, <laughs> however that's determined. And these are the norms that you use when you're making, you know, doing ethics in the clinical setting. Um, and fortunately, I think oftentimes, maybe the majority of time, uh, at least in my view, those things overlap, right? So yeah. it's not, there's this incompatibility or major clash between, you know, real ethics and the conventional norms in the clinical setting. But the way I see it, that's not always the case. There are cases where they can come into tension. Yeah. Yeah. Right. That's where the question's really raised is exactly what's going on here and what's the role of the ethicist and all these things. And these are, these are important and hard questions. And, uh, there's a lot of people don't want to ask them because they realize that it's going to open up a can of worms in terms of disagreement and it's going to make it harder to get everyone on the same page and make yes. decisions. Yes. I think that there are certain practical limits that have to dictate how it's done in a hospital setting, right? Like there just isn't enough time uh, and space to have these discussions. And so what you do is pass hospital policies to make the decision-making process faster, right? Like here at, at OSU, there's like a list of uh, surrogates with the descending order of priority that we use, right? right. So, and, and that just makes it easier. I mean, you don't have to do it that way, but that's just one way to make it easier. Right. You know, right. So I, I think it it's unavoidable. The hospital has to be able to make decisions in a timely manner, and there's no space for that philosophical discussion. So that philosophical discussion has to take place somewhere else, right? And then the example that I use is something in regards to like brain death, right? Where like philosophers are the ones who talk about what it means to be dead, right? It's a very fundamental question, right? That is not a question that's raised at the bedside, right? That That is at the end of kind of like the, the professional decision-making process already, right? So you have philosophers who work out the theory when you have a good enough argument, you pass law, you pass hospital policy, and then you apply it in the hospital, right? Just like, well, according to the law, according to hospital policy, if you're brain dead, you are dead, dead, right? It is, that is not the space to talk about, you know, whether or not this person is truly dead. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I think you're right about the practical limitations, right? And of course, I don't, uh, what I wouldn't recommend is trying to, you know, be extremely Socratic and have these hours long conversations at the bedside when it's like a very time sensitive decision, you know, talking about the nature of whatever, right? But I think, so it's funny, the the um, process you mentioned, again, to, to go to Plato, right? It sounds very much like what Plato's ideal city would be if there were philosopher kings, right? The philosophers debate about it, they come up with the right answer and then it gets implemented, right? At the level of law and policy. So part of me wishes it worked like that. I don't think it works anything like that. <laughs> um, I think there's much stronger forces that determine how this stuff gets worked out. But um but yeah, I mean, I think there there are cases. One of my one of my worries, or one of the reasons why I think it's important to ask this question that we're asking, right, about the relationship between, you could call it, you know, real ethics or 
capital M morality or moral truth. Um, and then the normativity or the, the rules that are going on in the clinical setting is that um, not everyone maybe, but I think there are a good number of people who are looking for moral guidance, right? Because they really want to do the right thing. They're very conscientious. They're dealing with, you know, difficult moral decisions and they're trying to make a, a conscientious judgment about what they should do, right? What the right thing to do is in the real morality sense, right? The right thing to do, not what ha might happen to be legal, not what their hospital policy says, not what their, you know, profession says or the bioethics community, but like, what's the really the right thing to do? And if they're looking to bioethicists for guidance, right, which is a very natural thing, if you've got a professional ethicist, that's the person you go to as a resource to help figure out the right thing to do. Then I think that's a place where this conflict becomes pretty, this problem becomes pretty acute is that, is the ethicist supposed, how are they supposed to help you with that? Right? Are they supposed to help you think about it the way that, you know, a philosopher would by getting at these fundamental moral questions and these big disputes and arguments? Or are they just supposed to appeal to the conventional norms of clinical ethics, right, that we've talked about? That's a really difficult kind of case. And I don't think it's purely hypothetical, right? Yeah. I, I think can think of cases where I that seems really clear that that's what people sought advice mm -hmm. for. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm not sure how often I got those consults where people were really seeking, you know, the moral truth in particular situations. I think they were seeing it more from a practical perspective kind of like, what do we do to kind of address this issue? And I felt like my job was really just giving them what the standard process was, right? It was kind of like they were asking for um, like a, an AI assistant, like a Google assistant. They're like, hey, Google, you know, like, what do I do in this situation? You know, and I just like pop up. I'm like, bing, well, you know, this is how we address it at this hospital. We have a list of uh, surrogates with the descending order of priority. So that's where we use that, right? I'm like, oh, the, our policy says this, so that's what we're going to do here, you know. And it, and it was a, it was hard to actually see how useful my philosophical training was when I was giving recommendations. Like, I felt like that my philosophical training enabled me to justify certain things, right, and ask questions on why we, you know, ought to practice clinical ethics in this way, you know. But 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 the con the specific consults that I got were not really seeking that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that accounts for the majority of cases. At least my experience lines up with yours too, Jason. There are some exceptional cases though. Um, so here is maybe to to go more on the positive side of, you know, what role can the philosophical enterprise or moral theory have in bioethics? How could it be a valuable place? So a lot of it, like you said, is kind of mechanical, right? People are looking at you more like they're looking to a lawyer or a judge, right? What is the rule that's relevant here? And that could be the law. It could be hospital policy. It could be like the established norms of uh, medical ethics, whatever. And then you're just saying it, right? Like the list of priority of surrogates is a good example. But other times, but even there, right? So one case that comes to mind, even on that same topic, uh, sometimes the norms aren't specific or determinate enough to answer the question that you have to decide on, right? Or the recommendation you have to give. So um, we had a case where it was a case where there's an elderly woman uh, and the dis and she was not capable of making her own decisions. So, uh, and it was a life and death decision, right? About whether to provide life-sustaining treatment or to forego it and allow her to die. And she had um, multiple children. I think there were four children and she didn't have an advanced directive kind of naming her surrogate decision maker, right? 
But the way this case worked out was that um, given the laws of the state, it did not specify enough a hierarchy. Uh, and these people are all the same rank, right? So oftentimes the, the, the state laws will say something like, you know, it's spouse first and then adult children and then parents or whatever. But in this case, they were all her children. So they were at the same kind of equal rank and they disagreed. So that's why it was an ethics case was that you had, um, I think it was three versus one. You had three of them who wanted to forego, right, to not treat and allow um, their mother to die. And you had one who was insisting on continuing treatment, right, keeping her alive. And uh, it was a really hard problem because there just was no rule in law or in policy. Uh, and it's, it's still an open question in the bioethics literature. So there's not some bioethics consensus about that. So this was one of those rare but really interesting cases where my colleagues and I actually had to sit down and talk about this and deal with, I think, more of the underlying. We had more space to get into these kind of moral reasons, right? These moral considerations to determine, yeah, I mean, how should you settle this? You've got to go with one party or the other. So what's the best process to decide? Is it majority rules? Do you think about things like uh, who knows the patient the best, who might make decisions you know, that be closest to what she would want, right? And then you're looking at more than just the numbers. Do you just do pure chance, right? Just flip a coin. So yeah, that was one of those cases where it was a fun chance to to go beyond the rules and to do a little more philosophizing about how to solve a case like that. Yeah. Um, and when you have cases like that, it might be a good reason to pass policy so that you know how to address it in the future. Or do you think that they, you shouldn't have policies regarding that? Yeah, the interesting thing was, I don't know if that would have worked in our case because the ethicists themselves didn't agree, right? It wasn't unanimous. There was a difference of opinion among <laughs> us. <laughs> so it's hard to pass the hospital policy to begin with. That's right. Even when your ethicists are not on the same page. <laughs> yeah, good luck trying to get everybody in the hospital. Um, so yeah, that was a really interesting case. There was another one that I think brings out where these questions really are unavoidable, right? These deeper philosophical questions. Um, there was a case where I think it was an elderly gentleman and he was really just done living and wanted uh, wanted his life to be over right and and kind of explicitly asked for euthanasia that was a quick no euthanasia is illegal right so that was an easy can't do it that would be illegal but then what was interesting is that this patient was pacemaker dependent right so he had a pacemaker and if it was stopped he would have died very quickly so he needed the pacemaker to keep his heart going so the follow-up request was to deactivate his pacemaker. And there, that's something that is not always euthanasia, right? So it's not illegal. That happens all the time. Most of the time, it's more morally justified to turn off a patient's pacemaker. So we're not dealing with something that's clearly immoral in itself always. But in this case, you can see the problem, right? Because this was, it seemed pretty clear to the physician that this was like the backup means of carrying out his wish to die. So the question there, and this, this physician, you know, um, their moral views was that they thought euthanasia was wrong, right? They did not want to be participating in euthanasia. Uh, and so the question they put to the ethics service was, is this morally permissible? Is this, is this a form of euthanasia? Uh, how do I deal with this? It's a really hard question, right? So there, the key issue, there were multiple ones, but the real key issue that it came down to was one of intention, right? It seemed like intention was the most morally significant factor here. And that's a whole nother can of worms, right? Intention is something that's oh, yeah. extremely difficult, right? There's a huge literature about not just what an intention is. I mean, that's a hard question to answer, but what kind of moral significance, if any, intention has for determining the rightness and wrongness of actions, right? Um, questions like, is, is our intentions determined purely by the mental states 
of the acting agent, or are they also partly determined by objective causal relations in the world? Right? You'd have to answer that question here because you have a really close causal connection between turning off the pacemaker and the patient's death. So that was a really difficult case. And that one was that one was uh, one where I don't see any way of avoiding these more fundamental questions of moral philosophy, right? In this case about intention. Yeah. No, I think those two cases are really good at highlighting the core problems. The first case actually reminded me of a situation that my mom and her family faced because my mom's mom, she had stomach cancer. And towards the end of her life, she you know, was just at the hospital and the doctor said that they could perform this surgery that might be beneficial. And my mom said that my grandma would not want it. She would not want the surgery, that she would just want to die. And my, my aunt disagreed. Like she, My aunt wanted my grandma to get that surgery. And my uncle abstained. Mm-hmm. So there was a tie. He was the tiebreaker and he abstained, yeah. Yeah. And so you had the situation where you have like these two kids who are disagreeing over what the course of care is for their mom should be, you know? So that really reminded me of that. Although like thinking about it from a clinical ethicist perspective, I would say that my mom's judgment should have prevailed because she was basing it off of my grandma's wishes. She said that that is what my grandma wanted, whereas my aunt did not base her decision off of that. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a really... So how was that resolved, Jason, in that case? Well, my aunt was more intimidating, so uh, she won. I see. I see. Yeah, that I think that brings out the issues that we're talking about too. Yeah, and this is one where you might think that there's a difference, right, between like the rules, the established rules, and maybe what you think uh, the right position is. So I don't know if it was like this. Was that that was in California? I'm assuming. Um, so yeah, the the typical. So in addition to what we've talked about and like the order of who should make decisions, there's also established rules for how the decisions should be made, right? You know this. So it's not the case that surrogate decision makers can make decisions just for any reason whatsoever, right? Like for their own self-interest. So you can't, no one's going to say it's it's morally okay to let, let your relative die because you want your inheritance, right? Mm-hmm. That would not fly. That would get you uh, kicked out of being the surrogate decision maker pretty fast. Um, but in, in the, your, the case of, uh, of your grandma, um, the rules are, right, the established rules, both legally and ethically, right, are that the decisions have to be made first based on the patient's explicit wishes. Um, so that's kind of an autonomy-based criterion. Then based on substitute judgment, like as best you can tell what they would have wanted in the situation if they could have decided, right, that's also an autonomy-based idea. And the last one, right, if, if those two fail, it's kind of an objective best interest standard um, that's not based on the patient's preferences or hypothetical preferences. And so you have to follow that order of hierarchy. So in that case, if your mom was appealing to what your mom either explicitly wanted or would have wanted, and your aunt was appealing to just a best interest thing, the rules would say that your mom was the one who was making decisions in the appropriate way, right? Yeah. But again, that's just the rule. So you could, someone could argue, right? You can see someone arguing that really in certain cases, maybe it's really the best interest standard that is the most important one, right? And that we should go with, even though it's the last one that the established rules say uh, should be used. I kind of want to talk more about this, just the second case okay, uh-huh. about like discontinuing the pacemaker. And just to kind of clarify for the audience that one of the reasons why it's complicated is because patients have the right to refuse life-saving care, right? Right, And life-saving treatment, right? So if it were the case that you needed a pacemaker, you could, if you had capacity, refuse it, mm-hmm. right? So then the question is, well, what's the difference between refusing it to begin with and then just stopping it after you've received it? Yeah. 
Yeah, that's right. No, it gets got, there are a lot of moral complications here. Yeah. One of them is about intention, right? And whether you can, whether doing this action would involve an intention of death, right? Or whether death can be something that's foreseen, but unintended. And if you subscribe to the traditional distinction, right, that there is a moral difference between intention and foresight and to something like, you know, the doctrine of double effect, then that's going to be a really important set of questions to ask, right? The other one, though, that you bring up is is a different distinction, another traditional distinction that's been around for a long time and has been defended and is part of traditional medical ethics, but it also is is very disputed, right, and rejected by a lot of people, is the doing allowing distinction. Um, and that's going to be, you know, this is the, the, there's an intrinsic moral difference between something like killing versus allowing someone to die. Or uh, here, it's relevant to the question of withholding versus withdrawing treatment, right? So again, the established rules, both legally and, and ethically, right, in the bioethics community is that there's no morally relevant difference. There's no intrinsic moral difference between withholding and withdrawing a treatment. So if it is morally justified to uh, withhold, meaning like not to start a treatment, then it's also morally justified to withdraw or to stop or remove that same treatment, right? Other things being equal. So here, yeah, the question is, is this refusal, right? Is this more akin to, right? Or is this a case of the more general rule that patients have a right to refuse treatment, which also extends to stopping treatment that's already been started, right? Like the pacemaker. Um, and is that, you know, is that something that makes a difference, right? The fact that it's been started as opposed to if, if it was just a refute, no one would think it's problematic, uh, if, well, actually that's not true. <laughs> um, this is another, another complication, right? But most people wouldn't think it's problematic if the patient just said, you know, autonomously refused to insert the placemaker, the pacemaker, right? That wasn't there before, just a, a refusal of treatment. But here I think. There was one, the the really I think the question that was really bothering the physician right and and getting uh, the physician's conscience activated right and that they really needed help to think through was um, if they were opposed to euthanasia right which we can just say is the you know intentionally causing the death of your patient then is this a case even if you do have a refusal right an autonomous refusal or a, a you know wish to stop treatment. Um, this position would have said if the patient was autonomously requesting a lethal injection, they would have thought that's morally wrong. So is this case more like the lethal injection case, right? Where it's an in intentional kind of direct causing of death or on the part of the physician, right? With their agency, or is this more like a typical permissible refusal of a pacemaker, right? Um, part of it has to do with the nature of the action, right? The action theory, the intention stuff, the doing allowing stuff. Part of it has to do with the reasons the patient's giving. Do those make a difference, right? In this case, what made it hard was that he clearly seemed to have a wish for euthanasia, right? He was intending his own death and looking for a means to bring it about. So here you have other questions about like morally permissible cooperation with evil. If you think euthanasia is a serious wrongdoing, um, how much can you help someone achieve that goal, right? I think that was going on too. That's a whole nother set of moral issues about when and, and why under what conditions you can actually cooperate in someone else's wrongdoing. Yeah. I was actually going to bring that up. Yeah. Because... All this is why it's a great case. Cause it's just so messy. There's so much like fundamental ethics going on in that. Yeah. Case. Yeah. yeah. I was wondering, uh, you know, if it would make the physician feel any better if it were physician assisted suicide rather than euthanasia. Cause I know in the bioethics literature, that distinction is often made, right? 
but it just in terms of like how you feel about it, the the action, you may not feel like it's any different, morally speaking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think you're right. I think at least on the emotional side, right? Um, that could make a difference. Yeah, this was an interesting case because there were there were disagreements among uh, the physicians for sure. You know, different groups of physicians disagreed about the morality of this particular action, and I think among the ethicists too. Yeah. I guess I'm not really seeing, like, if you don't think that there is a moral distinction between withholding and with withdrawing, I, I feel like you would stop the pacemaker, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know? Like, yeah. do, do you know how that physician felt about just not even inserting a pacemaker to begin with? And that, you know, leading to the patient's death? Yeah, I think, um, so I don't remember, and, and maybe I shouldn't speak to the particular views of the physician, right, in question, but um, I think... They they ultimately I think saw it, uh, or at least whoever made that decision ultimately saw it the way you described. Right? Is this this is a species of the more general acceptable um, case of a refusal, right? A refusal of treatment that justifies withdrawal, just like removing a ventilator. Yeah, yeah, or stopping dialysis, or stopping dialysis. Right. So it was seen to be akin to that, but I think the the thing that was so interesting and led to the the disagreements among the physicians and the kind of perplexity, right, among people who are trying to figure it out was that um, there were issues we've talked about intention, right, and, and whether doing that would necessarily involve intending the patient's death or could be done without intending death. Uh, there were questions about whether the pacemaker, whether it was really withdrawing an active intervention, even though there was really no, no problem, active problem, like it was solved. There was questions about whether the pacemaker was actually a part of the patient's body, <laughs> and this was yeah. kind of like removing someone's heart or something. Right? Yes, yes. Um, like what's so, in metaphysical questions about right identity and and composition and all this stuff. Yeah, because you can imagine another case where maybe like a patient received an organ and now they want to remove because they don't want to live anymore, or I don't know. So exact situation like that. That was right? brought up. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I think someone mentioned that that case exactly. Right? Is this. Um, and I think some people felt like it was in the same ballpark, right? That was, it was analogous to that. Um, so yeah, this was a fascinating case. This was maybe the most like philosophically complex case, one of them for sure that I was involved in. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but easy answers. And I think as we've kind of illustrated, right, there's no way to avoid these deeper philosophical questions about all these things. Yeah. So what do you think in general about the role of philosophers in hospitals? It's a good question. <laughs> um, I think, well, you mean like serving as an ethicist? Yeah. Right? As like, do you think there should CEO. always, well, yeah, not necessarily that, but do you think that there always should be a space reserved for a philosopher? Um, yeah, it's hard to speak kind of universally just given that there are so many different kinds of hospitals. Uh, so on the one hand, like if it's a very small hospital, you know, way out in the country with a very small staff, then it would seem too much to say they have to have a philosopher on staff because it might just not be feasible or they might not need it. But for for major hospitals, right, like the ones that you and I were at, then I do think you can make a good case for that. And I think you can you can make a really strong case for at least keeping a role for philosophers in bioethics, right? Even if you have to have a, a trained philosopher working in the hospital per se, mm -hmm. but having philosophy be part of the discipline of bioethics, for sure. Um, I think that's how it's been from the beginning. For a while, philosophers were kind of leading the charge, yeah. right, on the leading edge philosophers and theologians. But I think because of the nature of the discipline, right, philosophy tries to answer the big questions about morality, about the moral life. And it tries to do so in a way that is through 
reason, right? Through reason that's supposed to be accessible to all human beings, independently of their, you know, um, religion or culture or nationality or anything like that, right? It's supposed to be the universal discourse that you can use to answer these questions and develop these practices. So I don't think we want to give up philosophy's role because I think there's a it's a really crucial um, place for reasoning about morality, right? Yeah. And all all domains of applied ethics, but certainly bioethics. Yeah. It shouldn't just be philosophers, right? There, you need more than that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I feel like it, it has to be interdisciplinary because yeah. the situation is very interdisciplinary. Um, but yeah, I, I, I almost feel like on the day-to-day -day consults that a hospital gets, the vast majority of the time, you would not need a philosopher because a policy has already been established. There is a bioethical standard that has been established. And now philosophers can just just as easily give that advice based on those accepted standards. But again, like once in a while, you have cases like the one that you mentioned, where they really stir up fundamental questions and issues that perhaps now philosophers are not as well equipped to address. Mm -hmm. And in those special cases, you want access to a philosopher. Mm -hmm. No, I think you're right. I think you're right. Um, it definitely comes into play in kind of the day-to-day -day ethics case consultation, which is the bulk of what at least a lot of ethicists do. But I also think, you know, there are more activities of ethicists than just consulting on cases and giving recommendations. So two of the other big ones are going to be developing hospital policies and then education, right? Ethics education for clinicians, for, you know, everybody in the hospital community, for students, right? If there's an attached med school, nursing school. Um, and there, I think, you know, it may be even more apparent why you need philosophy because you're actually hashing out the principles or trying to explain the ideas. Yeah. Right. And so to, to make an argument or to decide how a policy should be formulated or to answer students' questions in classes or to teach them you know, about all these things, then, yeah, it would make a big difference. It would be a big benefit to have some training in philosophy. For sure. Yeah. I don't know how the structure is at the hospital you worked at, but here at OC, we kind of have like an ethics committee, right, that, you know, that will uh, formulate policies and pass policies, and then you have the clinical ethics consultation service, right? Uh -huh. And there's overlap, right? But they're still kind of separate, right? So maybe you would have a philosopher on the ethics committee, but not necessarily performing uh, everyday consultations, right? Mm -hmm. But they can still advise if the clinical consultation service needs some sort of, uh, needs some assistance. Right, right. Yeah, it was the same where I was at, Jason. Um, and there, I think the the broader ethics committee. I mean, not every not every uh, ethics consultant is a philosopher. Obviously, a lot of them are. Um, but the broader committee is where you have that inter interdisciplinary right mix of people from all different backgrounds and walks of life and areas of expertise, and that can be really helpful, I think, in the committee setting. But yeah, I mean, another reason why I think we need to keep philosophers at the table, right, or involved, is that I do think that there's such a thing as ethics expertise. So this is a big issue. You know, in the bioethics literature, is there are there ethics experts? If so, who are they? Um, what kind of role should they have? So I do think there's something. You know, if you're if you're a realist about this, like I am, if you think there are objective moral truths that we can know, and if you think that human reason has the ability to know them, at least some of them, right? Uh, then it's completely plausible to say that somebody's powers of moral reasoning and reflection and analysis, right, and insight can be come in different degrees, right? Those kinds of um, capacities are not, are things you can develop and become better at or worse at, right? It's not just all intellectual, obviously, but that's part of it, right? We're rational beings. Morality is a rational enterprise. 
So if you study moral philosophy, you know, and you get the kind of experience that you and I have, the, the gift of being able to do that, right, then it's hard to see how that wouldn't make you better equipped, right, to engage with some of these questions. You have the training um, to do the analysis, the reasoning, the argument, right, this kind of all these rational um, practices, right, that we go through when we're actually trying to discover the moral truth. So if that's your view about morality, right, and about the human mind and all those things, then um, I do think that philosophers can claim to have some special expertise in the the distinctively ethical dimension, right, about those ethical questions, like the ones we were talking about, like the nature of well-being. They don't have expertise in everything, right? So this is a mistake I think that's uh, cost philosophers some credibility in medicine is that it's easy to, I think Bob Veach called this like the generalization of expertise mistake, right? Because you're an expert in something, you think that your expertise extends to everything, right? The pitfall for philosophers is thinking that because you have expertise in ethics, you also know the medicine just as well. And I think that's a big mistake, right? So philosophers need to be especially attentive to the fact that they are not the experts on the medical issues, right? And they need to convert real experts, right? The clinicians are the experts. So again, it's interdisciplinary. But I, I think that we should resist saying that training in philosophy, it doesn't have to be philosophy, but training in ethics, right? Careful study, um, education, right? Practice, all these things uh, is non-existent, right? Everybody is equally good at doing ethics as anyone else and, and getting training in philosophy or theology or whatever, right? Gives no advantages or no expertise. I think that's just transparently false, right? Obviously false. Yeah, no, I tend to agree with you. Um, I think it's a good time to wrap things up. Uh, do you want to share any current or future projects that you have in mind? With respect to the topics that we've been talking about today, I can plug something that's, it's not a new piece of work, but it's recent enough, right? So um, a colleague, Jeff Bishop, and I edited this special issue of the Journal of Medicine and Philosophy a few years back. I think it's 2020. The whole, it's a double issue, so there's a lot in there, but it's devoted to principalism. Um, and so if you want to learn more about that approach to ethics and see some of the, I would say, most capable uh, critics of it, right? Friendly critics, but getting into some of the issues that we've talked about, I would uh, recommend that issue. It also has really nice pieces by Beecher and Childress themselves, and they respond to all of their critics at the end. So they're involved too. It's always good to hear from the, the people themselves, right? The proponents themselves. So I'd recommend that if you want to learn more about principalism. And in terms of, uh, in terms of the stuff that I'm working on now, um, current scholarship is not bioethics. It's, it's different stuff. So I'm uh, just about to finish with a book on God and happiness connected with some of the well-being stuff that we talked about, Jason. So my question there is what difference does God or theism make for these big philosophical questions about happiness or well-being, right? The nature of it, the possibility of it, all these things. Wonderful. So, wonderful. Sounds, they sound interesting. Thank you, Jason. All right. Well, I, I think I'm going to end it here. Uh, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. No, it's been great talking with you.